going to speak about today is um, a part of a longer paper, um, which is which what, what the paper what it tries to do is um, it attempts a global intellectual history of this notion of tribe, uh, and situates debates on the subject in South Asian history and anthropology within a longer intellectual history, which is kind of interconnected and so on. And the first half of the paper is the kind of the longer paper. Um, is devoted to kind of outlining um, an interconnected history of what I'm calling primitivism, and I'll define the term very shortly. But here I offer a very brief overview, and I can get into more details about specifics, uh, connections with Africanist anthropology or, you know, something else that you, you want to talk about, new world stuff that Anthony Pagden and other people have written about. Um, but what I'm going to try to focus on, since this is a South Asia um, seminar, is I'll focus on the, the problem of primitivism within the historiography of South Asia. So how this particular problem, which is global, manifests itself within South Asian history, uh, modern South Asian history. Um, and I, and I, I want to show that, this, uh, that the South Asian manifestation of the problem is linked to this, uh, to wider currents of modern intellectual history on the one hand. And on the other hand, it, there's a peculiar way within which um, social and cultural histories of tribal or Adivasi or Janjati groups um, are written within you know, what was broadly seen as the subaltern fold. Um, now what my, makes my, I want to also kind of clarify here because this will become clear why I want to put a caveat here, that you know, what makes my argument possible um, is of course critical reflection on the problem within South Asian historiography. Um, in, in, in ways that have offered different, uh, sometimes contradictory, uh, ways of extricating ourselves from this very uh, naughty problem of primitivism. Okay, so um, what do I mean by this term? So by primitivism, I, I want to talk about um, colonial ideology of rule that sought to manage populations and places described as wild, savage, or simply primitive. Similar to other colonial ideologies of rule rooted in ideas of oriental despotism or Muslim fanaticism, primitivism too was both a justification for a particular legal administrative system in a colonized territory and a social theory meant to understand the inner structure of a colonized society. Yet primitivism was a distinctly liberal ideology of rule. So if you go back to John Stuart Mill's um, ladder of civilizational maturity, um, childlike savages ranked below agrarian societies, slaves, uh, pastoralists, barbarians in his words, and commercial society, civilization. Uh, post-1858, as Karuna Mantena has shown, agrarian societies came to be seen as the domain of non-liberal customary arrangements by the likes of Henry Maine. Uh, but votaries of primitivism in Victorian India saw tribal populations as childlike and backward in very much the same terms as mills on liberty, and hence in need of both protection and in improvement. Patrons of primitive societies such as E.T. Dalton, W.W. Hunter, and others endeavored to discover their non-Aryan or pre-Aryan essence in the wilds of the subcontinent, intending to protect this primitivist essence and simultaneously raise economic and educational standards among these populations. So primitivism is, is, was, a both, was both a justificatory argument to govern primitive places and peoples, and an anthropological theory that explained the workings of the most backward human societies. The anthropological works that advanced the ends of colonial primitivism 
oscillated between scientific pretensions modeled along the lines of evolutionary biology and geology, and on, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, a neo-romantic yearning for alternative social possibilities that defied the moral corruption and turpitude that was seen as handmaidens of modern commercial civilization. Now, plenty has been written on the anthropometric efforts of Herbert Reesley in Bengal, excuse me, and, and the pseudo-scientific endeavor to treat tribes as analogous to the lower strata of the Earth's crust. Relatively little ink has, by comparison, been spilt on understanding the neo-romantic impulses that propelled colonial anthropology in British India. These impulses arose alongside the import of Germanic ideas of the folk into British India. The Roman historian Tacitus was a key figure here, as Ananya Kabir has recently shown, insofar as his Germania became a model in both Germany and India for imagining tribes as animists and foragers who owned land communally and worshipped in sacred groves deep in the woods. This Tacitian model of primitive society and religion was reified through accounts of heroism in defense of Teutonic freedom rooted in nature and community. Like their German nationalist counterparts, British anthropologists and administrators used Tacitus to explicate aspects of India. This is uh, Ananya Kabir's uh, words. Using an analogy between pre-Roman or non-Roman Europe and pre- or non-Aryan India. For Colonel Dalton, a key figure in the tribal administration of colonial Bengal, the Indian subcontinent was dotted by pre-modern vestiges and tribal habitats that had, to a comparatively recent period, been regarded by Hindus as outside the pale of Hindustan, occupied by a people who differed from them in religion, in customs, appearance, and language. These subcontinental tribes, claimed Dalton in his uh, ethnology, descriptive ethnology of Bengal, uh, had prior to the Aryan occupation of the Gangetic provinces been the dominant races, and hence they were living illustrations of the progress of mankind almost from the Stone Age to the confines of modern civilization. Whereas main-inspired status quoism desired for caste society in the plains, that was the kind of Indo-European uh, kind of analog, uh, votaries of colonial primitivism, like Dalton, delighted in transposing the neo-romantic celebration of nature and freedom from the Germanic past to the imperial present. For the neo-romantics who held significant administrative posts in the scheduled districts of British India, um, knowledge of the tribes and their free nature-loving ways of life was a radical intellectual endeavor that sought to break free from the dullness and discipline of modern Western society. They yearned for what a recent anthropologist has termed Arcadian spaces with visions of alternative moralities. These yearnings rested on, quote, neither logic nor empirical science, falling beyond the scope of deductive and inductive reason that is neither rational nor irrational, but rather non-rational. This non-rational approach to scholarly writing and argument then and now makes it possible to project one's own radical political aspirations onto those who cannot speak but must be spoken for. Two most likely candidates in this category were tribes, understood as wild humans, and wild non-human animals, both of which attracted a copious flow of neo-romantic reflection in, in late colonial India. From the, from the very beginning, Indians of high social rank found primitivism to be, attractive, uh, to be an attractive ideology for their own ends. 
On the one hand, the Indians under colonial rule were only too happy to appropriate the apocryphal narrative of the Aryan conquest of the subcontinent to highlight their close racial and civilizational proximity to the white colonizers and their corresponding distance from tribal or aboriginal groups as they were known. As Shumit Goha has argued, the mythic history of clashing races proved very useful indeed when brown sahibs and white sahibs sought to escape their fears about the instability of social hierarchy by giving it a biological basis and projecting it into the past, mm -hmm. thus covering extant hierarchies with the mantle of the natural and the primordial. This is Shumit Guha. Um, on the other hand, however, the neo-romantic essence of primitivism also appealed greatly to upper caste Indian writers insofar as it dovetailed nicely with the quest among the colonized to bypass the distressing details of the recent past to construct alternative histories in which there were neither British nor Muslim rulers. Much, much like the so-called dream histories of Bhadralok writers such as Bhudev Mukhopadhyay, um, anthropological reflections on tribal India promised to take readers beyond what they may have understood as the prison of reality and the Victorian fetishes of discipline, routine, and order. These are Dipesh Chakrabarti's words, by the way. Um, such attitudes towards past, reason, and tribes, both then and now, have come curiously to be regarded in Indian intellectual circles as radical in, in their polit political orientation. It's against this backdrop of Indian radicalism and the inability of mainstream Congress-led nationalism to absorb it fully that we must understand Ranjit Guha's lament about the failure of the Indian bourgeoisie to speak for the nation and of the scholarly failure to acknowledge the contributions made by the people on their own that is independently of the elite to the making and development of this nationalism. Um, those are his, Guha's words. Now, this kind of criticism of the kind of mainstream Congress nationalism contains within itself what one historian has called a residual nationalism, which directed scholars to look for the truly national in the subaltern as against the merely bourgeois national that existed among the elite. In other words, Guha sought to posit a more authentic nationalism in the realm of subaltern politics, which not only negated the Congress's claim to moral and political leadership, uh, but also defended Indian nationalism from the Cambridge School view that it was entirely hollow. It is unlikely that a better candidate for such a high purpose could exist than the tribal of colonial Yorf. The subalternist's discovery or rediscovery of the primitive must be understood in these terms rather than in the, uh, on the basis of any deep engagement uh, with the vast anthropological corpus on India or other ex-colonized territories, let alone personal contact with um, Adivasis themselves. Dipesh Chakrabarti makes this point abundantly clear when he writes that unlike E.P. Thompson and others who were interested in recovering the mentalities and experiences of actually existing peasants or workers, Ranjit Goha was interested only in making a theoretical argument about subaltern consciousness as it's revealed in particular practices of resistance and rebellion. According to Chakrabarti, the word elementary in Guha's title acknowledges the structuralist tradition to which he affiliates, his, that's Guha affiliates his book. But such an explanation cannot tell us why the elementary and elementary aspects of peasant insurgency in colonial India uh, should be equated with the primitive. So um, the only possibility here is that the primitive rebel is for uh, Guha, the authentic Indian subaltern nationalist. Um, it is also no accident the title of Guha's book recalls Durkheim's elementary forms of religious life 
Um, Durkheim wished to identify the most primitive religion in the world in order to lay bare the religious nature of man as an essential and permanent aspect of humanity. Uh, Durkheim relied on models of primitive society to articulate a theory of religion. What Guha is doing, uh, tries to do is rely on representations of so-called primitive rebels to articulate a theory of anti-colonial consciousness. In both cases, the evolutionary assumptions of colonial anthropology seeped, however unwittingly, into celebrated works of social theory. For Guha, if the primitive rebel stood as the nationalist or at least anti-colonial subaltern figure par excellence, uh, it was necessary to take this figure into intellectual battle. The sparring partner here was neither a Cambridge nor a nationalist historian of the day, but the British Marxist Eric Hobsbawm, who had in 1959 written a panoramic overview of what he called primitive rebels in the European context. Um, for Hobsbawm, although the activism of ordinary rural women and men always departed from the right kind, what he called the right kind of ideas about political organization, strategy, and tactics, and the right kind of program, their blind and groping ways was without um, guidance of any revolutionary party, uh, but they were nonetheless important in the success of social revolutions, such as those in Russia, Cuba, and China. Guha, in fact, came to more or less the same conclusion about the politics of so-called primitive rebels in the Indian nationalist movement. Guha writes, more often than not, it lacked neither in leadership nor in aim, nor even in some rudiments of a program, although none of these attributes could compare in maturity or sophistication with those of the historically more advanced movements of the 20th century. The evidence is ample and unambiguous on this point. Quite clearly, one is dealing here with a phenomenon that was nothing like a modern party leadership. He added, it would be wrong, of course, to overestimate the maturity of this politics and read into it the qualities of a subsequent phase of a more intensified class conflict, widespread anti-imperialist struggle, and generally a higher level of militancy among the masses. Compared to these, the peasant movements of the first three quarters of British rule represented a somewhat inchoate and naive state of consciousness. Yet for Guha, Guha's primitive rebel to be recognized as a post-colonial hero, it was necessary to counter and counterpose it to um, Hobsbawm's European examples. So with much fanfare, Guha castigated Hobsbawm for the use of the word pre-political, um, the term pre-political, to describe primitive rebels when in fact his own assessments of their inchoate and naive consciousness as well as their not yet mature politics was in some ways harsher. The disagreement here is purely semantic. Both Hobsbawm and Guha recognize the political salience of these so-called primitive rebels even as they recognize the limits to their politics. But whereas Hobsbawm uses pre-political to denote forms of politics that predate modern constitutional or party-driven politics, Guha makes the same evolutionist point within his expanded notion of the political. Yet Guha and later Ch Chakrabarti portrayed it as a kind of apocalyptic intellectual clash between Europe and the ex-colonial world. Um, Guha suggests that, quote, Hobsbawm's material is of course derived almost entirely from the European experience and his generalizations are perhaps in accord with it. And hence, quote, whatever its validity for other countries, the notion of pre-political peasant insurgency helps little in understanding the experience of colonial India. At stake here is the ability of the radical Indian historian to represent the historical realities of colonial India. Real existing subalterns, including primitive rebels, 
uh, were inc incidental to this epistemic combat between putative representatives of a hyperreal Europe and post-colonial intellectuals from India. Now, however noble its aims and ideals, it was far from clear whether a project so oblivious to its own blind spots and anxieties could yield a suitable model for coming to terms with this inherited uh, primitive subject of modern Indian history. But once the, the cheers of self-congratulation had ended, uh, the more mundane task of reading dusty government files, extracting inferences from them, and representing the rediscovered primitive remained. So in the rest of the paper, and this is kind of the second half of the longer paper, I kind of critically examine these mundane matters of historical method and interpretation in Ranjit Guha's famous reading of the Santal Hul of 1855. Um, my aim is not so much to analyze the discursive dimensions of Guha's prose uh, as to offer a critical reconstruction of the Hul in conversation with Guha's account. Um, I faithfully follow Guha's prescribed method of reading colonial archives against the grain, albeit, as you'll see, with somewhat different conclusions. And it's for the audience then to evaluate both interpretations of the same event, uh, same set of events from the same files, noting the overlaps and divergences that follow. Now, it's well known that a major cause of the armed uprising of Santals in 1855 lay in their long-standing concerns over Bengali mercantile groups, Mahajans, in the area. Accordingly, the young rebel leaders, Sidhu and Kanu Maji, both descended from a Santal headman's lineage, wrote to the district magistrate. The Mahajans have committed heinous crimes, Pap, and all have acted unjustly. These complaints followed directly from initiatives taken by military proconsuls in Chotanagpur after the coal insurrection of 1831-32 to encourage Mahajans along the lines of the Do Commerce thesis um, to um, expand their operations throughout um, southwestern Bengal. This expansion of new commercial networks, replacing older ones, unsurprisingly ran into trouble from those among the Santal village leadership who took loans at high rates of interest from these money-lending Mahajans. Sidhu and Kanu, who were uh, much in debt and never paid their creditors, demanded that their creditors, their words, their creditors should not be paid and that in future only one paise per rupee per annum um, as should be the interest. In his testimony to the judicial officer in charge, Sidhu added, my quarrel with the Mahajans is that they charge five rupees interest for one rupee lent. They also require more than two solis of rice. And if we don't give it, they pull our ears or beat us. Sidhu claimed this was not only unjust, but humiliating. And he had conveyed the same in person and through petitions to Mr. Pontet, the deputy collector, albeit without any response. So he, Sidhu writes, I have often complained this to Pontet, but he never listened. I, have, I gave him petitions at Burishnar Nagar, Barhet, Gacheri, but he would not listen. I also petitioned him at Rajmahal. He only said, you have eaten first from the Mahajans, Banchot Sala, now you come to complain Sala Banchot. Right. Um, finally, Sidhu decided to approach Mahesh Dat, the police constable or Daroga, um, for aid in countering the Mahajans. He said, I have been complaining for five years against the Mahajans, and up, to, up till now, no investigations have been made. On hearing this, he continued, Mahesh that abused me, then I killed Mahesh that with, uh, with, uh, with a sword with my own hand. It angered Sidhu that a young man from a distinguished Santal family could be held hostage to the whims of a lowly banya, charging extortionate interest. 
It angered him further that despite a strong case against the Mahajans, he had been humiliated repeatedly in public by the magistrate and the police constable. Taking the law into his own hands, following these, followed from these circumstances, um, Sidhu was of course not alone. He was not acting as an individual necessarily. His brothers and the Majis, the village headman among the Santals, stood in solidarity with him. He says, the Majis bound the Daroga and then I killed him. Besides the Mahajans, the Sahibs and their misdeeds also feature quite prominently in Sidhu's testimony. Not only did Mr. Pontet, the deputy collector of Bhagalpur, fail to register Sidhu's complaints, he actually raised the annual rents on his lands from five to nine rupees uh, annually. But the land is just the same, says Sidhu, as when I first paid five rupees. Pontet, according to Sidhu, gave much dik, that is trouble. Um, he added only one anna should be paid for each oxen plow and two annas for a buffalo plow. The police constables and junior officers, Sidhu claimed, further extorted anywhere between five and 10 rupees from each village. The amlas, that is the judicial officers, um, Sidhu and Kanu wrote in their parvana or proclamation to the, uh, to the government, now made the whole rules and regulations bad. And this is sin to the sahibs. Now this is a very surprising reference to the rules and regulations, which is uh, kind of of the Bengal presidency as an object of veneration, and it's absolutely critical to understanding the nature of colonial subject formation here. This is in the 1850s. Um, it's entirely, in some sense, by, first of all, there's no uh, suggestion here that Sidhu or Kanu actually set, sought to disparage or even oppose uh, the colonial state and its uh, rules and regulations. And in some ways, this is Ranjit Guha's an, uh, imaginative kind of insertion into historical proceedings. It's telling that, in fact, the Thakur, or the deity that appears before Sidhu and Kanu, was perceived as, and Guha acknowledges this, as a white man with only a dhoti and a chadar, uh, who sat on the ground like a sahib. The Thakur apparently told the brothers-in-arms, tell the sahib to cut your claims, you must not run away, tell the sahib to let the majis go. His brother Kanu actually uh, had told all the Santals that they were to pay all the revenue to the government and to place themselves under the charge of him and Sidhu. The Santals were expected to remain loyal uh, to the Raj, but simply treat him and his brother, that's uh, Kanu and his brother Sidhu, uh, both Majis, as local state authorities in place of the existing set of officials. Um, Guha must surely have been aware of this current in rebel consciousness, but his prior commitment to an anti-colonial position um, obviously blinded him to the ways in which Sidhu Kanu may have actually seen themselves as loyal colonial subjects, denied justice by mischievous individual officers, and of course the, uh, the Mahajans and their accomplices in the village. A final word must be reserved here for the religious dimension of the insurgency, uh, in fact, emphasized in, in quite enthusiastic terms by both Ranjit Guha and his colonial predecessors. Uh, J.R. Ward, a military officer on special duty, wrote to his superior in Calcutta, William Gray, I've been unable to trace the insurrection in Birbhum to anything but fanaticism. Expressing be bewilderment as much as disgust, Ward continued, an almighty and inspired being had appeared as the redeemer of their caste, and their ignorance and superstition was easily worked into a religious frenzy, which has stopped at nothing. Whereas Ward believed that martial law alone appeared sufficient to suppress the insurgency, that is. 
Ranjit Guha's invasive reading strategies led him to exaggerate and valorize the Santal rebels' religious motivations to rebel. Writing of the Thakur, the new deity who is believed to have inspired uh, Sidhu Kanu to rebel, Guha explains, in what was clearly a case of overdetermination, the power of the colonialist Sahib and that of the pen-pushing dhoti-clad Babu were telescoped here in a composite vision and telescoped to divine power. Now, what's happening here is that the post-colonial historian is trying to ex rationally explain away the motives of primitive rebels in a non-rational idiom. And then this is seen and some, as a kind of radi radical intellectual exercise. Now, what's happening here is that, ironically, this kind of inversive reading of the colonial archive reinforces old colonial stereotypes of easily excitable primitive rebels not amenable to reason, despite the petitions and everything else. This is not to say that religion was irrelevant to the leaders and participants in the Santal Hul. They were certainly not. But the new religion was crafted carefully from disparate old and new elements by the brothers in arms Sidhu and Kanu to legitimize their political authority. When the police officer, Mr. Tugut, um, entered the rebel's home in the village of Bhangnanadi, he found a Thakurbari, uh, literally a house or temple for the deity, in the middle of Kanu's compound. The description is from the police report is, under a large cover made of wicker work, the Thakur consisted of a circle of mud, about two feet in diameter, raised some two inches, but connected with the adjacent earth, and having in the center another small circle, about three inches in diameter, and similarly raised about two inches. In fact, the Thakur was exactly like the one of the solid wooden cartwheels used by these hill peoples. Now, it's incorrect to say that the Thakur was imagined by his devotee um, as a wooden cart, but he was imagined in a wooden cart. Um, and in fact, we have a good sense since um, Sidhu and Kanu clearly described what the deity looked like. Most likely, the wicker-covered wicker cart was a kind of resting place for the Thakur when he did, in fact, descend from heaven to earth. We also learn from Tugud's report that, in quotes, when milk was poured on it, from its fissures it spouted up and other phenomena were seen. Um, such phenomena were taken to be signs of the deity's presence. Indeed, Sidhu and Kanu had told the Majis, or headmen, of nearby villages to bring cups of milk as offerings to the Thakur, and when the lay villagers asked in what form the Thakur had appeared, the brothers said in a flame of fire. When the milk used to rise up, it was presented by the brothers as a proof of the Thakur's presence. Sometimes when a man was doubted, his cup of milk was declared to be of a bluish color, and he was then pronounced to be untrue to Thakur, and the offering was refused. And the Thakur's cart was also surrounded by the heads of goats and two buffaloes, which early animals early that morning offered as an oblation to the deity, after which Kanu led, led forth the men to attack. Now, this kind of blood sacrifice is straightforwardly tantric shaktik in origin, very commonplace across eastern India. But this is by no means in traditional, quote-unquote, Santal religion, as Guhas and, Guha and others have assumed. What we find here is instead the evidence of a new kind of communitas, carefully conjured up in a ritual idiom, even as it serves an overtly political purpose. The distinction between the inner and outer worlds of this so-called um, this kind of um, community in the making uh, was to say blurry, the distinction between the inner and outer, that is. It's noteworthy that the Santal rebels sought inspiration in a set of existing tantric shaktik ritual practices, and it's equally noteworthy that they also drew on the new symbols and ideas introduced by Christian missionaries in Chotanagpur. 
in the sanctum sanctorum of the Thakur's resting place, wrapped up in a white cloth and tied round with a piece of golden string, were four books, which it is reported fell from heaven. These books were believed to contain the orders of the Thakur, and hence they were read every day at the Thakur Bari. If the modern reader is skeptical of the influence of Christianity on um, the new rebel religion, then the skepticism must be laid to rest by the fact that the four books were translations of the Gospel of St. John into Bengali and other languages. Lest there be any lingering doubts, consider the Santal rebels' recorded statement that they took up arms, within quote, um, at the order of a god who they incarnated in the person of a child and who they carry with them, and that this child is to reign as god and king. The amalgam of the old and the new, the homegrown and the foreign is striking here. Yet readers of elementary aspects know nothing of this. The evidence presented so far cannot neatly be fit into Guha's conception of negation, um, uh, motivated by imagined anti-colonial sentiment. We are better served by acknowledging what others have called the modernity of tradition and underlying the creativity of the Santal rebels who sought to create uh, a new kind of moral political community bound by their new religion and oriented towards negotiating the modern state. An amalgam of disp disparate elements found in Sidhu Kano's religion is apparent. It bore the imprint of the colonial army and Christian missionary activity in Nagpur, but it was also a creative response of newly minted tribal subjects who sought to present themselves as distinct from Hindus and Muslims, um, which had much relevance later in the census and so on. Um, Eventually, paternalist administrators and census enumerators came up with a term for such religious practices that were neither Hindu nor Muslim, uh, animism. Yet far from being a continuation of tradition, whatever that would mean here, um, the new politics of difference practiced by the Santals had everything to do with their hybrid forms of modernity. What we glimpse briefly in these extracts from colonial file is, files is a long and complex process by which certain groups became tribes in modern India. The making of the modern tribal subject is a process that needs to be understood in dialogue with historical processes of modern state making in the so-called scheduled districts. As we have already seen, the modern tribal subject in, subject in the making in, in Chotanagpur could negotiate the secular trappings of governmental power as well as the political theological realm of society. She, she could do so peacefully as well as violently, demonstrating dramatically the real limits of paternal, paternal colonial power, paternalistic colonial power, and the primitivist ideology that animated it. Yet in Ranajit Guha's words, and he's citing uh, Levi-Strauss, these illiterate people living in conditions of a Stone Age culture in the jungle were anti-colonial figures par excellence. Now, how do we explain this mistaken view of the Santal Hul and more generally the inability of the kind of radical historian of the post-colonial times to appreciate the rebels' motivations? Ironically, the answer may lie in a colonial proclamation that reworks primitivism after its spectacular failure to anticipate or explain the Hul. In the following words, the proclamation reasserts primitivism as a colonial ideology, sounding very much like the modern-day champion of the tribal subject. The system of administration, I quote, in the old Bengal districts was totally unsuited to the character and habits of such people as the Paharis or the, or the Santals. And the root Santals were sure to be involved in a thousand mazes, difficulties, and perplexities, 
and at last to be invariably worsted by their astute and experienced adversaries. The sympathy of the radical historian today, who assumes a simple binary opposition between primitive subject and modern state, follows directly from the sympathy of official colonial pronouncements like this after the Hul. The statements of Sidhu and Kanu either fall by the wayside or appear in snippets to articulate a new kind of primitivism that celebrates the tribal as an exemplary anti-colonial hero. Even when the subaltern speaks to us down the ages, however incoherently and incompletely, the radical subalternist chooses to encode her speech into a primitivist frame of reference. In retrospect, what we find in elementary aspects is a well-intentioned intellectual effort to represent subaltern actors as anti-colonial rebels. Yet this effort is hampered by its tendency to take colonial discourses on tribes at face value, their primitive and separate ways of life, their excitable minds and fanatical adherence to their traditional religion, their ignorance of modern state practices and that, that constituted governmentality uh, in colonial times, and their jealous defense of not just their freedom, but kind of freedom with a capital F. Um, in part, the Chatterjee's words, built into the subaltern studies focus on peasant insurgency, was the assumption that the state and forms of governance were external to the immediate social world of peasants. This was, of course, taken to be a radical intellectual move. Yet Guha's attempt to find the elementary aspects of anti-colonial insurgency in tribal rebellions appear considerably less radical politically and intellectually than it pretends to be. As he put it in the course of delineating the nature of tribal consciousness, to overestimate its lucidity or depth will be ill-advised, for it is still a rather hesitant, inchoate, and disjointed perception. In other words, only the radical post-colonial historian truly knows and can legitimately speak of his subaltern. It's kind of always his, in some sense. Um, such an attitude to history writing ironically reinforces the colonial ideology of primitivism, albeit with the radical Indian historian of India now assuming the role of the paternalistic colonial administrator in his Solatopi. Shorn of the will to improve, colonial-style primitivism is left merely with the conservative will to protect and preserve tribes based on the belief that they are vestiges of a bygone era and our own long-lost selves. If we are to escape the primitivist trap of writing tribal histories to illustrate elementary aspects of some phenomenon of interest, we must start taking the available historical evidence on so-called tribes and recognizing how the making of the modern tribal subject is intertwined inextricably with modern state formation in India and beyond. We are now in a position, of course, to abandon the conceit of an earlier historiography that imagined in Chatterjee's words that the state and forms of governance were external to the immediate social world of peasants, including tribal subjects. We are also able, thanks to later subalternists, to appreciate the entanglement of power and resistance and to give up on what Laila Bulogoth calls the scholarly romance of resistance. Similarly, the works of Prathama Banerjee, Ajay Skarya, Crispin Bates, Shumit Guha, and others have made it possible to better understand the politics underlying colonial and post-colonial representations of tribal societies. We may do well to follow the lead of Tanika Sarkar, a contributor to the early volumes of subaltern studies, who has recently revised her essay on Jitu Santal's rebellion in Malda in the light of scholarship since the 80s on this subject. As the last IESHR, um, Indian Economic and Social History Review issue um, of reading Adivasi, on reading Hadivasi history suggests, 
the interests of contemporary social theory will be better served by more rather than less careful attention to Adivasi life worlds, whether past or present. Anthropological engagements with primitive subjects, so-called, uh, will also be better served by banishing the Savit slot and our own neo-romantic longings. And for those diehards who will still persist in seeking out Arcadian spaces as political utopias in the forests and hills, it may well be worth recalling that the word utopia literally means a non-place or no place at all. Thank you. <laughs>